Mr. Tomlanovich. Chief Justice, my ladies, my lords. I'd like to begin by pointing out certain uh, general propositions that uh, are the respondents' uh, submission. We support the status quo insofar as the, the legal tests. Uh, our position is that there is no need for a new rule, either in relation to uh, 10B or uh, the PROSPER warning as it's being advanced by the appellants in this case. Uh, there's a couple of other principles that I, I submit are important for the panel to keep in mind. And I, and I should tell you, I will be dealing with uh, the three grounds that deal with Section 10B, and my colleague will be addressing the 24-2 issue. So I'll try and keep an eye on the clock and not run into his time. This case cannot be decided on a principle that suggests advice from duty counsel is somehow inferior from advice from another lawyer. I mean, this court has, has labored hard to establish the Bridges Rule and uh, enforce it because the purpose of duty counsel was to give that important, immediate, preliminary legal advice. And there's nothing in this record, in the, in the Willier appeal, that would suggest that this appellant got inferior advice from duty counsel or that duty counsel as a general rule just aren't as good as a, a privately retained lawyer or another lawyer of choice. The other principle that I submit is very important to bear in mind <clears throat> is that when we're talking about the right to silence or the, the right under section, rights under Section 10B, we're talking about the detainee's choices, the detainee's rights. And this case can't be decided on a principle that somehow effectively shifts those choices from the detainee to his lawyer. Because that's what seems to be implied by this. Uh, for example, uh, Sinclair is an example uh, where he says, I don't know what choice to make. Well, you're not asking, you're not entitled to have counsel decide for you. Counsel is there to give you advice. Not to, it's not for you to delegate that choice to counsel. And a principle that would expand 10B to effectively delegate the choice to counsel is antithetical to the way our charter rights operate. Now, there's, there's irony in this appeal as well. And there's irony for two reasons. Uh, there's irony because this appellant uh, was treated very well by the police. In fact, the police went out of their way to try and accommodate his rights. In our submission, they did everything they were supposed to do and a lot more. And the irony is that in spite of that, the trial judge finds them in breach. The other irony to this appeal is that the appellant, who was given his rights, properly read his 10B rights, who understood his right to silence, who gave a voluntary statement, then goes to trial and challenges the admissibility of that statement on the basis that his 10B rights have been violated, an issue on which he has a burden of proof, an issue on which he said nothing to the police at the time about uh, the adequacy or inadequacy of the advice he received, and then applied to the court for a remedy on the basis that 
he didn't get meaningful contact. So he gets the call. He alone knows what transpired in those two calls he made to duty counsel, and yet he called no evidence as to what happened from his end, what his understandings were, what he wanted, what he was intending to do, and he called no evidence from the lawyers in issue, the duty counsel who gave him the advice, who actually spoke to him, or Mr. Royal, who uh, might or might not have spoken to him, might or might not have been able to get back to him that day or the next day. That's the irony of this appeal, because this individual was cautioned and arrested formally at least three times. And not just the mere words, but in fact, uh, there's a technical breach. The trial judge found the first time the police forgot to read him his rights when they initially arrested him. And they said, we, we forgot. We were concerned about his health. They're rushing him to the hospital. They did tell him he was under arrest for the murder of this lady, uh, his, his common-law, Ms. Mursad. But as they're rushing him to the hospital, he makes a remark about, yeah, when, once you fellows are through, uh, I want to get a lawyer and I don't want to be interviewed. And they say, fine. They go to the hospital. It's hours later. The officer finally remembers, oh, yeah, I didn't read him his rights. So he reads him his formal rights, his 10B rights. He, he gives him the caution and uh, basically tells him, you can call any lawyer you want. It means we, we, before we can proceed with our investigation, you have that right. And the appellant says, well, uh, I have to apply to legal aid. And they, they clarify that for him. They say, no, 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 you can get free duty counsel right away. And he says, okay, I don't, I don't want to make the call now. I'll make it tomorrow. And they say, fine. They leave him in the hospital because he's still getting treatment. And they have an officer come, a constable, to uh, stay with him, guard him until he's released from hospital. When he is released from hospital, right around midnight, he is then given his rights again by that officer, formal reading of the rights, and he's allowed to make a phone call to duty counsel. That's the three-minute call. Now, that call is made at his discretion, as you heard. He decided how long he was going to spend on the phone. He decided when to terminate the call. If it was too short, how are the police to, to monitor that in any way? Are they to, to order him to keep talking? You haven't been on the phone long enough? It's his choice. When he next morning was taken out of cells again by Corporal, uh, I think it's Lehe. Uh, she again asked him if he wanted to call a lawyer. And that exchange was not simply, I want to call Peter Royal. That exchange involved a couple of uh, statements back and forth. In fact, initially, he was, he was offered the option of calling duty counsel again, legal aid duty counsel. Uh, and then she said, or if you want to call any other lawyer. I'll give you a phone book. And he said, who? Who should I call? Uh, that transcript is actually right in the judgment of the Court of Appeal. Uh, I, won't, I won't take you through it or, or read any parts of it. But uh, at that point, he then says, what about Peter Royal? And she says, I'll help you reach Peter Royal. She finds the number, dials it for him, gives him the phone, tells him that there's an answering machine, he can leave a message. And it's after that that she suggests there may not be anyone taking or checking messages over the weekend. Uh, do you want to call someone right now, free duty counsel? And he says, let's do that. So this is all part of a sequence of events where the police 
are being very accommodating, and they're offering him these two choices all the way through. And then an hour later, it's, it's a little over an hour after the phone call to Peter Royal, that he's uh, interviewed, that the interview begins. And what, is, what does that officer say? The first things he says to the appellant is, uh, here are your rights, same formal rights that were, were read before, and if you want to talk to a lawyer any time during the interview, say the word, and, and we'll stop and you'll get that phone call. There is no request for any further efforts to call a lawyer after that second call to duty counsel. Now, the second call to duty counsel was only a minute, but that was the appellant's choice. Nobody told him to hang up. Nobody said, you have one minute, or you've been on the phone long enough. He was calling and actually talking to the same duty counsel he spoke to eight hours earlier. And so when he terminated the phone call at that point, obviously he was content with what information he'd received. And in fact, he tells that to the interviewing officer. The officer says, are, are you content with the advice you got? Yeah. And there's never another request. So parenthetically, what more could the police do? And here they are trying to accommodate and trying to comply with the rules. And in spite of that, they're accused of a charter breach. And actually, the trial judge finds that they are in breach. Now, that ruling in our submission uh, is not simply a question of fact. It's, it's an error that he made based on uh, a misapplication of the legal tests. And there's, there's a couple of uh, reasons why that test was a misapplication. The test, the reasonable opportunity test, is a good workable test as to what, your, what should be done in order to accommodate. We don't have timelines. We don't have strict uh, bright line rules as to how long is long enough to wait. In this case, there was very little prospect of uh, a callback from a law office message left Sunday morning at 8 a.m. So the realistic prospect at that time was that it would be at least 24 hours before that office opened on Monday, and maybe more, because some, some of the offices don't open until 9. So that's how long they might have had to wait to see if Mr. Royal even returned his call. Now, he's been described as a very busy defense counsel, and I'm sure this panel knows that busy defense counsel, often the first thing they do on a Monday morning is they're going to court, and they, they may pick up their messages at the end of the day. So we have no idea when or if he might have returned the call. But that's not the issue here. What really happened in our submission, and this is getting into the, the next ground, and I'll deal with it in a little more detail later, is he chose. Instead of waiting for Mr. Earl to call him back, he chose to speak to duty counsel. And that choice was his to make. It's not a question of waiver. It was just his choice of an alternate counsel. It's like, do you want to wait now for a, a flight that's leaving in 12 hours? Or do you want to take this one that's leaving in an hour? And if you say, I'll take the one that's leaving in an hour, no airline attendant's going to say to you, I want you to understand that the, the flight 12 hours from now is a really nice plane, you know, and it's, it's got luxury seating, and you can recline the seats. It's your choice. And uh, that's what he did here. He did have a reasonable opportunity, and the trial judge misunderstood what the requirement was. Because part of his finding that he didn't uh, give up his choice of contacting Mr. Royal 
is based on the notion that he didn't understand he had a reasonable opportunity and that he didn't understand he had counsel of choice. And uh, there's no evidence to support those findings. In fact, the, the cautions that were read to Mr. Willier were precisely in the words of, you can choose, you can call any lawyer you want. And he was told that several times. So uh, there's no basis for the trial judge to say he didn't understand he had counsel of choice. And then to say he didn't understand he had a reasonable opportunity, sure, th there were no magic words uttered. The police did not say, and it's our duty to advise you that you are entitled to a reasonable opportunity to reach uh, a particular lawyer. What if we did the situation were as described by the lawyer called uh, at the voir dire who said that they have um, an answering service that connects to the lawyers and tries to track them down at home. Would it make any difference to your proposition if the reasonable opportunity to speak to a lawyer of your choice was one where that logistic was possible as opposed to a case like this where there's no evidence how long it would have taken? Sure. That, that could make a difference because then you would expect that, uh, uh, well, and it, and it would really be the obligation of the detainee to follow up. If he phones the first number and is told, you know, uh, if, if you're calling on a weekend, call this number, and he doesn't write it down and he doesn't try and call it, then he's not being diligent. But if the police are assisting him and they hear that and they, they don't pass that information on, then they're not accommodating his reasonable opportunity. Certainly it would make a difference. And, and perhaps, you know, some, some answering machines have that feature where you can be reached 24 hours. Uh, this one clearly didn't because the officer heard the message and the, uh, the appellant as well. So th that's, that's why reasonable opportunity is a good analytic tool for determining uh, fairness and access to counsel at the pre-interview stage or the preliminary arrest stage. And that's why it doesn't need to be changed. And we have one exception to that. We have the Prosper uh, exception. That's a very spe a specific situation where you're not uh, you're not wanting to call uh, you're wanting to call a lawyer initially, and then you change your mind because perhaps you get frustrated or you're unsuccessful, and it makes it makes some sense if the person has gone as far as wanting to call a lawyer and then uh, feels like he's he's uh, unable to before he gives up, he gets this additional information. Now in this case. That information essentially was given to this appellant anyway. Police didn't have to do it any more than they had to tell him that he could keep trying to call during the interview. That was them going above and beyond what's required by law. But it's also significant in this respect. With no evidence from the appellant, it's, it's an inescapable inference that he was content with his two calls to duty counsel and was not interested in further pursuing Mr. Royal for the purpose of preliminary advice. Now, it's possible on the record that he still wanted to retain Mr. Royal in the long term. And that's what Justice Lemaire talked about. I believe it was in Bridges that there's, there's two issues. There's the immediacy of advice at the time of arrest so you know what your rights are and, and know about your right to silence in particular. And then there's perhaps the long term plan of retaining a lawyer, which may require applying to legal aid or perhaps uh, coming up with, with private funds to represent you if you get charged and prosecuted. And the way he talked about Mr. Royal, it was always in the context of I have to apply to legal aid. 
So without other evidence, the only inference you can draw from this is he, was, he didn't need Mr. Royal's immediate legal advice to decide what his rights are. He wanted Mr. Royal for the long haul. And in that uh, issue, uh, my friend has conceded, counsel for the appellant has conceded that duty counsel can satisfy the 10B obligation. So the only question is, was there anything in this record to, to justify the kind of uh, conclusions the trial judge drew? And the underpinning of the trial judge's conclusion about the 10B breach was that this, this fellow, this detainee, didn't understand that he had a reasonable opportunity. Well, everything the police did spoke to a reasonable opportunity. They may not have used the magic words, but clearly they were prepared to bend over backwards to accommodate his uh, attempts to contact counsel. So a new prosper rule wouldn't help this appellant in any event. But it certainly isn't needed because the, the current rules are more than adequate. Now, the, the Court of Appeal also found that he had waived his right to silence, he'd waived his right to counsel of choice, or he'd waived his right to further contact with counsel. And they said it didn't really matter uh, how, how you characterized what he did. Uh, the reality was he implicitly chose not to pursue those further by his actions. And they said the, the mistake the trial judge made is that he treated waivers strictly on the subjective st standard and not didn't consider the objective part of the test, which is the more significant uh, part of waiver. Now, I realize, uh, Chief Justice, that uh, when you authored your judgment in Hebert, you, you drew a distinction between waiver and choice. And uh, there, is, there is a significance here. We're not submitting that this is some sort of a formal uh, waiver application or some sort of formal, formal waiver issue. We're saying this is simply a matter of choice. He chose another counsel. Uh, it would be a triumph of form over substance to, to turn a choice of counsel into a prosper waiver situation. Just uh, visualize it, if you will. The accused says, I can't reach Mr. Royal. I, I want to call uh, duty counsel. Well, the officer says, before you do that, I have to read this to you, okay? So you understand. I, I want you to understand that you're entitled to a reasonable opportunity to contact Mr. Royal. And I realize it's the weekend, you've called, and he hasn't called back. But, and uh, I also want you to understand that we have to hold off until you've had that reasonable opportunity. And, and to recite that ritualistic chant every time the applicant, or sorry, the detainee wants to call another lawyer would be absurd. In, in Prosper, he was trying 12 different lawyers, made 15 phone calls. Are you going to stop each one and read him a warning, read him a Prosper warning in between? Uh, I, I submit that's, that's totally uh, unnecessary and, and uh, not a proper use of that, uh, that warning. Mr. Tomlianovich, at uh, paragraph 35 of the reasons of the majority, which is tab 4 of the record, The majority says the burden of proving the charter breach and actual prejudice from any breach is on the respondent. Is that a correct statement of the law? It is uh, if, they're, if they're talking about 
if they're talking about showing uh, the relevance of the breach to the evidence obtained. Now, if we're talking about formal waiver, I acknowledge that uh, waiver is the, the Crown's burden to overcome. But what we're talking about here is if there's a technical breach. Well, I mean, let, let's take the alleged breach. Suppose, whether it's made out or not, being a different matter. Sure. Suppose that the appellant uh, did have a right to counsel of his choice and assumed that that right, I say assume, that that right was violated. Did the appellant have an additional burden to prove prejudice in some of the forms suggested elsewhere in the reasons? That is, that an, another lawyer might have given him different and better advice? Where does if, that come from? If the situation is that he got advice anyway from another lawyer, and there is no complaint about the adequacy of the advice, he's not saying, testifying in, in the charter application that I, I, did, I couldn't understand the advice. I, I, it was confusing. I didn't know where I stood. I really wanted to talk to Mr. Royal. If, he, if that was the kind of evidence he called, then that would be a very serious breach. If, if it was simply I wanted to talk to Mr. Royal, I ended up talking to another lawyer, he gave me the advice I needed and I was satisfied with it, then we're talking a technical breach. And then if he gives a statement after that, voluntarily, knowing his rights, his right to silence in particular, and, and this, the interview was like this one, where there was, there was no dirty tricks, there was no lying, there was no coercion, there was no oppressive atmosphere, and, and he's actually willing to talk, eager to talk. If you look at the transcript of the, uh, the interview, it's, it's not too far into the interview where he's asked, how was it you know, living with this woman? And he just gushes. He, he goes on for pages about their relationship and how, how tumultuous it is. And it's it's in that context that you have to uh, assess whether, uh, whether there's any link between the breach and the fact that he gave the statement. And it's, it's his burden to prove 24-2 overall. So he has to show that evidence was obtained as a result of the breach. Now, I realize it doesn't have to be a causal link. No, it can be a temporal I think you're right that under 24-2, the matter may take on yeah. a different complexion. But in establishing a breach, of his charter rights, is he required as well, in order to establish the breach, that he suffered a pre an actual prejudice as a result of the infringement of his right to counsel? And if so, where does that come from? I, 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 I think this area is probably more properly uh, an analysis under 24.2. But I, I think they're also commenting, and the Court of Appeal is commenting on the lack of evidence of, of what was going on in the mind of the appellant. Now, I, I don't want to take away uh, my colleagues' uh, submissions on 24-2, so I'll, I'll go no farther than that uh, on this issue. But there, as I said, it's ironic that he makes this complaint and he, and he calls no evidence and he, and he gives no information to the police to suggest there's a problem. So I think that's where they're talking about prejudice. And it's, it's available for a trier of fact to say, it wouldn't have made any difference if he'd reached Mr. Royal. Not, not for this circumstance. If he testified, yeah, boy, if I talked to Mr. Royal, he'd have told me, uh, not only keep your mouth shut, but, but you know, watch out for this, watch out for that. And if I'd known all those things, I would never have even started talking to the police. That may be a situation where you can say, yeah, it's, it's clear. There's, there's a significant causal link between the 10B breach 
and the, uh, the statement obtained. I don't think it's the situation. Now, the voluntariness finding is very significant. Uh, not simply because it establishes that he knew his right to silence, but it also establishes that, uh, because voluntariness addresses other things. It addresses the propriety of police conduct. It addresses the fairness of the process. So when you have a finding of voluntariness, as occurred in this case, it, it's a very strong uh, factual uh, foundation uh, in terms of uh, the propriety of police conduct. And uh, the finding in that regard seems almost uh, inconsistent with his comments, the trial judge's comments, about the 10B breach. Because then he starts talking about how the uh, detainee was under the weather and he was having trouble. But in the, in the voluntariness ruling, he said he was, he was bright, alert, rational. And there's, a, there's also an underlying theme in the appellant's uh, submissions that suggests somehow that this individual is uh, vulnerable or uh, I think one of the interveners referred to him as being of diminished mental capacity. There's absolutely no evidence of that. Sure, he's, he's an Aboriginal person. He's only got a grade four education. He's got a history of drug and alcohol abuse. But if you read the transcript of his interview, he is articulate, he is alert, he is responsive to the questions. In fact, as he starts to talk about how terrible it was living with this woman, the officer says, I know you feel bad for what you did. And he says, I never said I did anything. I only said I feel sorry for her for what happened. So he's, he's on top of things. He knows what he's saying, and he's fully engaged in this interview. And he knows when he's giving a disclosure or an admission and when he's not. So it's, it's a conceit uh, of perhaps lawyers to think that you're always better off uh, with counsel making decisions for you than making them for yourself. But we can't lose sight of the fact that a lot of these individuals are very, very aware and, and they're quite capable of looking after themselves in an interview. There isn't always this, this uh, perception of a huge power imbalance with, you know, sophisticated, uh, clever uh, police officer who's, who's grinding down the poor, unsophisticated uh, detainee. Now, the last point I want to make, and uh, I think it's very important, is the quality of the advice cannot be the basis of a 10B breach. It, it is impossible for the police to be in any way responsible for the quality of legal advice that someone gets. They can't be a privy to it. They don't have the expertise to assess what's good or bad legal advice. The, uh, uh, Detainee has a, a solicitor-client relationship, which is jealously guarded. So the police can't be in the room. They can't know what was said. And they can't be in any way auditors of the, the meaningfulness of that contact. And to suggest, uh, as the, the expert witness did in this case, that you need at least five minutes to give this kind of information. That may be well and good for him. His evidence was functionally irrelevant because the other lawyer may be just as competent. Maybe he can do it in three minutes. Maybe he talks faster. Maybe he's just more concise. But the point is, there's nothing in this record to justify a finding that this individual didn't have meaningful contact with counsel. And uh, there's, there's no 
way that the police could ever uh, comply with that kind of a requirement if that was an ingredient of their uh, obligation to see that there's a reasonable opportunity. It, sure, if you get information back from the detainee, I didn't understand my rights, I, I, I'm confused, the, the guy talked so fast I couldn't follow him, or uh, I couldn't get what he was telling me, that's an indication that you need further contact, and that's, that's what they should do. They should accommodate that. But they're not in the job, and they're not in a position to say, hey, you've got to be in that room for at least five minutes. You know, five, three minutes isn't enough. Because uh, we don't think you can get enough advice, good legal advice in three minutes, or 10 minutes, or 15 minutes. It's just this, this argument is perhaps uh, the most flawed of all, and, and the, the most seriously uh, impeached part of the, of the judgment. And it's significant in this case, there were no further requests for contact with counsel. And <laughs> here's the ultimate irony. <laughs> the uh, detainee is asked, are you satisfied with the advice? So he says, yeah. So what, is he lying to the police? And if he's lying, what do they do about that? Do they challenge him on it? Uh, it's his due diligence that's, that's at stake here. And the fact that he did not testify in the voir dire, the fact that he didn't call either of the lawyers involved in the initial advice issues, uh, leads to only one inference, and that's because he has a burden of proof. The inference is that none of that testimony would have assisted him at all. So he tried to run this issue on the basis of look at the transcript, and from that, if you, if you really think hard and you infer and you speculate, you can come up with, I didn't get meaningful advice. That can't fly. And I will end my submissions at this point, turn the floor over to my colleague on the 24-2 issue. Thank you. Chief Justice, uh, learned justices, uh, I will be making comment on the Section 24.2 issue that arises as a matter of, of the facts of this case. And uh, it is the respondent's position that the exclusion of evidence under Section 24.2 of the Charter uh, in the event of a breach is never something that it is automatic. And that in this case, the Court of Appeal was correct to conclude that the trial judge erred in not applying the analysis from R versus Collins to the statement provided uh, based on the breaches that he had found. Uh, it is also the respondent's submission that in this particular matter, the Court of Appeal was correct to conclude that when the Collins analysis was applied to the circumstances under which this statement was taken, that uh, it should not have been excluded by the trial judge at the trial. And uh, the first issue that obviously needs to be addressed is the question of what impact this statement, the admission of the statement, would have to the fairness of the trial. And it is the respondent's submission in this particular matter that the admission of the statement would not impact trial fairness. And there are five points that I would wish to make in connection with this submission. The first is, by virtue of the fact that the statement was found to be reliable by the trial judge, that also included the finding that the statement was reliable. And in the absence of reliability concerns, that certainly goes a significant distance towards allaying any concerns that might exist that, in fact, there would be unfairness from allowing this evidence in. The second point 
is this was a statement that was provided by the exercise of the appellant's free will. It wasn't a result of the police overbearing the appellant's right to silence to obtain a statement from him. The third point, again, is as recently confirmed by this court in the Singh decision and previously discussed in Hebert, uh, the police certainly have the right to persuade uh, an appellant to speak. The fourth point in this regard is that in these particular circumstances, the taking of the statement from the appellant was done fairly. And there are four specific findings by the trial judge that the respondent suggests clearly indicate the fairness of the proceedings. The trial judge found that the investigator acted very courteously. The trial judge further found that the appellant knew of his right to silence. The trial judge found that the inducements uh, given to the appellant to speak were mild. Essentially, they were that he was urged to do the right thing. Uh, the trial judge specifically noted there was no quid pro quo uh, that was involved in obtaining the statement. And lastly, the persuasive techniques used by the officer in conducting the interrogation were found to be not unreasonable. And essentially, they amounted to the officer indicating that he wanted to hear the appellant's side and telling the appellant that they really did know what had happened already. The last point uh, with regard to fairness uh, it is also the respondent's submission that when the circumstances of giving the statement are analyzed, uh, it is in fact the case that the breach as found by the trial judge, and obviously we've argued in the other part of the, our submission that there indeed was no breach, was not something that caused the appellant to provide his statement to the police. Now clearly there's a temporal link in this matter. Uh, and that clearly uh, will not necessarily be determinative. It was a voluntary statement. And uh, in the article from Justice Corey, which is noted at tab 10 of the condensed book, he makes the comment that voluntary evidence uh, is not evidence that is conscripted. And in that case, the reasoning in R versus Stillman would not apply. Now, the Crown must, the respondent must concede in this matter that two paragraphs after that comment is made, Justice Corey goes on to give a specific example of conscripted evidence, and the example he gives is a statement that is provided by an accused person in violation of right to counsel. Now, the respondent's position with regard to this matter is that this is really a rather special circumstance in terms of what is alleged to be the breach of counsel, of right to counsel, and the statement that is made subsequent. In this case, the respondent submits that at worst, this is an extremely minor breach of the right to counsel. There is a finding by the trial judge that the appellant understood his right to silence, that he was not overborne by the actions of the police in providing the statement, that he gave his statement voluntarily, and the inducements were mild, the persuasion was not unreasonable. As noted by my colleague, in the statement, the appellant truly did speak freely and with minimal prompting from the investigator uh, for a great portion of the statement. And he did that clearly from the finding of the trial judge with knowledge of his right to silence. Uh, in those circumstances, it is the respondent's submission that the evidence does not lead to the conclusion that his that the breach of counsel as found by the trial judge led to the statement being made. Uh, 
I would also uh, note that the statement uh, is in many senses a self-serving statement as he speaks of being intoxicated and suffering a blackout during the events that took place and also indicates that his actions towards the deceased were prompted by the deceased attacking him and being in possession of a knife at that time. Now there's no question that as he goes through the statement and uh, as he gets towards the end of the statement he provides some additional detail which is more uh, troubling to the question of his guilt but he never moves away from the idea that this whole thing starts because the victim attacks him and she's carrying a knife when she does so. Uh, and it is a submission that it's not something that was, the statement was not caused by the breach. Uh, moving on to the second Collins factor, which is how serious was the breach, uh, it is the respondent's submission that at worst this was a very minor breach. And with regard to that, it is always important to remember that the statement was voluntary and was obtained without a breach of the right to silence. It's clear, and there's been much discussion of the jurisprudence today, that the chief purpose of preliminary legal advice is advice on how to exercise your right against self-incrimination. In this case, advice was provided based on comments that were made by the appellant in his dealings with the police officers. It's clear that, that the advice he received included advice against self-incrimination, and the trial judge found that that right was understood. The appellant spoke twice to duty counsel, from what he said to the same individual on both occasions, and the length of his consultation with duty counsel was not affected in any way by the actions of the police. It was the appellant's burden to show that there was a violation of his right to counsel, and also, in the end, if there was a violation of his charter right, that he had an entitlement to a remedy. In this case, the remedy requested was exclusion of the statement. In this particular matter, there was no evidence introduced by the appellant, and he was the only person who had the power to do it, to show how the advice provided was deficient, how it may have been unresponsive to the information he required, or that he misunderstood what he had been told. And there's also nothing in the evidence to indicate that any of this was communicated to the police by the appellant during the course of their dealings with him. And it can hardly be stressed too much that in this case the appellant was advised, certainly in very clear terms, that he could continue to make attempts to contact counsel if he wanted to do that. Sergeant Gillespie in the final interview, or in the interview before he began questioning, uh, clearly said, anytime you want, you can stop this, you can call somebody. It is the respondent's submission that in this case, as in the Wood decision, which is noted at tab 12 of the condensed book, because of the appellant's contact with duty counsel, his clear, the obvious understanding of his right to silence and his failure to take up the opportunity for further contact with counsel, any breach of section 10B that related to the police not waiting for the potential return call from Mr. Royal is indeed too insignificant to justify exclusion in these circumstances. Uh, there are cases that are noted at paragraph 54 of the respondent's factum where in similar fact situations other courts have indeed found that there was no breach of right to 10B. Uh, I won't go into them uh, in any detail. 
Uh, the other thing I would note with regard to seriousness of the breach is that the trial judge in this case does not find bad faith. He did speak of the appellant's wish to contact counsel being overborne, but that really boils down to his eventual comment that he, there are a couple of occasions, the one being initially after the arrest and before formal right to counsel is provided when he speaks of wanting to contact counsel, and the trial judge concludes the police ignored his request. And then again with uh, Corporal LaHaye, that uh, essentially the same uh, matter happens, uh, the police move on. Again, with regard to the first instance, when the opportunity is provided by uh, Sergeant Dunn to contact counsel, the appellant's response is that he doesn't want to contact counsel at that point. Uh, he waits for some period of time. The police don't do anything further with the matter uh, in terms of trying to further an interrogation, and he then does speak to duty counsel. Uh, on the second instance, uh, again, after uh, he's unable to reach Mr. Royal, he, he does indeed speak to duty counsel, and he does not avail himself of the further offer by Sergeant Gillespie uh, that he can contact counsel at any time he wants, that he can stop the interrogation and contact counsel. The final point that uh, the respondent would wish to make is that in this particular instance, the admission of the statement of the appellant would not bring the administration of justice into disrepute. Uh, this is clearly a serious charge. The evidence was necessary to prosecute uh, the appellant on the charge. It was reliable evidence provided voluntarily. And it is hard to imagine that the public would somehow feel there was uh, a problem in the way the police went about carrying out their implementational duty. Uh, they were extremely active. Uh, initially, Sergeant Dunn corrected what appeared to be the appellant's misapprehension that legal aid coverage was necessary for preliminary legal advice. Uh, when the appellant said he wanted to wait, uh, again, Sergeant Dunn reiterated that he could call any time he wanted to. In the second occasion, when he was unable to contact Peter Royal, he eventually determined, based on conversation with uh, Corporal Leahy, that he would attempt to make further contact with duty counsel when he told the corporal that in that particular instance, he got a message saying no one was there. Uh, the corporal concluded that couldn't be correct and proceeded to make the telephone call, put him back in touch with duty counsel. The police provided multiple opportunities to the appellant to make calls to counsel and told him that he could stop the interview and call whenever he wished. He received and understood preliminary legal advice on the right to silence. It is the respondent's position that his understanding of that advice and the fact that the procedures proceeded properly are not called into question because he made the choice to speak to Sergeant Gillespie. This court has been clear uh, in the past that there is no bright line rule excluding all statements of an accused for any 10B violation. The analysis always has to be conducted. The appellant has not suggested that there is any need to change that position. However, it is the respondent's contention that what the appellant argues for in this case is exactly that. They are arguing for a situation that 
essentially a breach of Section 10B produces an automatic exclusion of the statement, irrespective of any of the circumstances that surround it. The respondent's ultimate position is that given the very particular circumstances of this matter, even if it is found that there was a breach because there was no waiting for the possible return call from Mr. Royal, that this breach does not justify the exclusion of the statement in the circumstances in which it was obtained. Those are the respondent's submissions on Section 24.2. Thank you. Ms. DeWitt Van Oosten. The Attorney General of British Columbia has intervened uh, in this case for the purpose of addressing only one of the questions that have been raised with the court, and that is whether Section 10B of the Charter guarantees um, a certain quality of legal advice and whether inadequate legal advice provided in exercise of that right can sustain a breach. The appellant makes the argument here that um, inadequate advice standing on its own is sufficient to sustain a breach of Section 10B. He goes on to say that what he was constitutionally entitled to in this case was advice that not only told him of the right to silence, but explained to him how he could exercise the right to silence in the coercive atmosphere of a police interrogation in a murder investigation. So advice that is specifically tailored to his individual circumstances. The majority in the Court of Appeal below rejected that proposition and British Columbia says it was correct to do so that the construction of 10B upon which that proposition is predicated is not well founded. Section 10B of the Charter does not guarantee the provision of legal advice, let alone a specific form of advice, advice of a certain standard or quality, or advice that is tailored to the detainee's individual circumstances. That's not the purpose of Section 10B. And I'm going to go briefly to the purpose of Section 10B and uh, present British Columbia's uh, position on that. The right to counsel guarantees a reasonable opportunity to consult a lawyer for the purpose of obtaining preliminary advice. The best description of the purpose of this right in my respectful submission is found in Bartle. And I'm not going to ask the court to go to the passage, but for your reference, it's at page 191 of that decision. And this is what was said there, that the purpose of the right is to provide detainees with an opportunity to be informed of their rights and obligations under the law, and most importantly, to obtain advice on how to exercise those rights and fulfill those obligations. And in that same passage, the court, uh, Justice Lemaire, went on to ask the question, why is the opportunity made available? And this is what he said, because the detainee is in immediate need of legal advice in order to protect his or her right against self-incrimination and to assist in regaining liberty. That latter portion of the passage in my submission informs the purpose of the right when he spoke of um, access to legal advice. How can that take place unless the quality of the advice complies with the purpose? 
The law um, as up to this point in time, um, Justice Abella, is that when someone has an opportunity to contact counsel in exercise of their 10B right, they are presumed to receive advice on um, the right to silence and how to exercise that right. What none of the cases have said up to this point, apart from a decision in British Columbia, which I will get to in a moment, is that the right um, embodied within Section 10B extends to the content of the conversation between the detainee and counsel. In making that, in making that um, proposition... So essentially perfunctory, irrelevant legal advice would, uh, would uh, really uh, satisfy the, con the constitutional standard. It would be obtaining, it would be re really obtaining legal assistance within the meaning of uh, Section 10B of the Charter? Advice that informs the detainee of the right to silence, which the Court has said is the principal function of that, and how to exercise the right to silence meets the requirements in Section 10B, yes. And when a detainee has had a reasonable opportunity to consult counsel for the purpose of seeking that advice, that is, in my respectful submission, a meaningful opportunity. So if he gets on the phone, gets the, the, the answer, you know what, uh, what to do, keep, keep your mouth shut, this would do. If the uh, counsel uh, under 10B advises the detainee of the right to silence and the way in which to exercise that right to silence is not to speak to the police, absolutely. And I say that for the following reasons. And I'm going to be very quick here. Three reasons, essentially. The appellant relies on, in making this, um, in advancing this position, relies on a decision out of the British Columbia Court of Appeal under the name of Osmond. And Osmond was a situation in which the um, court excluded a statement that was made during the course of a homicide investigation on grounds that, amongst other things, the detainee was denied, quote, effective early assistance during his conversation with Bridges Duty Council in exercise of the 10B right. The court found in Osmond that the lawyer had informed Mr. Osmond of his right to silence during the telephone call, but did not, quote, in light of the allegations, murder, end of quote, and the personality of Mr. Osmond, provide him with adequate advice on how the right to silence could be effectively exercised. And in that case, the lawyer said, you have a right to silence, do not speak to the police. I say, uh, and leave was sought on Osman, this court um, denied leave. I say that Osman was wrongly decided, and I urge this court to declare it wrongly decided in rejecting the appellant's position in the present appeal. And I say it was wrongly decided for three reasons. One, the court misconstrued the 10B right to guarantee both an opportunity to consult and the actual provision of legal advice. And this course has said, in Prosper in particular, that 10B does not guarantee, it does not guarantee a substantive right to legal advice. And indeed, when 10B was put into the Charter, as noted in Prosper, the framers specifically rejected a clause that would have extended to detainees uh, the right to be provided with counsel. The second problem with the decision is that it places an unrealistic implementational duty on police. 
If it guarantees the provision of legal advice and a certain standard of advice, they will have to ensure that the detainee receives advice and that it meets a requisite threshold before they can proceed. And the question is, how are they ever going to do that? The conversation is privileged. They're not in a position to know what has been said. Even if they were, they're not trained to make an assessment about whether that advice was adequate. This is an unrealistic implementational duty that would accompany um, a broadly defined provision in that manner. The third problem, and this is in my submission a very significant problem that was not considered by the Court of Appeal um, in this case, nor was it considered by the Court of Appeal in Osmond, and that is Section 32 of the Charter. The legal advice that is provided in exercise of the 10B right comes from private practitioners who are named by the detainee, private practitioners who are called randomly by the detainee, or private practitioners who contract themselves out to provide advice in line with Bridges Duty Council. It's, it's difficult to understand in my submission how a failure on their part, assuming there was, how a failure on their part would lay at the feet of the state in the form of a Section 10B violation. They are not government actors. They are not acting on behalf of government. What they say is completely beyond the control of the state. The police cannot participate in the conversation. We don't set requirements for what has to occur during the discourse. In British Columbia, for example, the Bridges Duty Council line is administered through the Legal Services Society. It is a corporation established by statute. In its enacting legislation, it specifically says it's not an agent of government. And there are, um, thus far to the best of my knowledge, two superior court decisions in British Columbia that have held that the services offered through that society are not subject to charter scrutiny. Is, is it then a question of, uh, would it go to voluntariness? Well, the, the question um, uh, comes up as to what happens then in a situation where the advice that they get is completely wrong. Hypothetically, for example, uh, counsel is contacted and says, uh, whatever you do, make sure you speak to the police. Worst case scenario. I'm not suggesting there's not a remedy for that. What I'm suggesting is it doesn't come through 10B. It may be at the end of the day that if that is established on the evidence and a trier of fact is satisfied that it has um, adversely impacted trial fairness, that the proper place in which to analyze that remedy is under section through um, the Herer analysis, which is its impact on trial fairness. Not through 10B, which has never been intended to extend to the nature of the advice provided in terms of a substantive obligation to ensure that they receive that advice. Those are my submissions. Thank you. Reply. Chief Justice, Justices, I wish to address uh, a few points. Uh, the first point that I will address is the issue of uh, is the um, appellant in this case required to show actual prejudice as suggested uh, by the majority of the Court of Appeal with respect to a call to duty counsel as opposed to um, the opportunity to attempt to speak with his counsel of choice. And uh, in my submission, um, that is not tenable and is speculative. And I, in fact, um, under the issue of trial fairness, um, 
as stated by Justice Lemaire uh, in Bartel, which is at tab 25 of the uh, condensed books, Justice Lemaire had stated when uh, on this topic, in light of the many warnings by this court about the dangers of speculating about what advice might have been given to the detainee by a lawyer had the right to counsel not be infringed, it is only consistent that uncertainty about what an accused would have done had his or her 10B rights not been violated be resolved in the accused's favour and that for the purpose of considering the effect of admission of evidence on trial fairness, courts assume that the incriminating evidence would not have been attained but for the violation. And uh, that is in considering uh, the first prong of the uh, three-prong test under section uh, 24.2. Uh, in my respectful submission, that is what uh, we are dealing with in the case of Willier. Uh, respectfully, there um, was a breach of a reasonable opportunity to contact his counsel of choice. He did not make an informed waiver of that right. So, Mr. Willier is not under obligation to prove that he would not have given to a statement to the police had he spoken to who he wanted to try to speak to as opposed to duty counsel. So that would be my point with respect to prejudice and how um, the call to duty counsel can also be considered under the trial fairness prong of the 24-2 test. My friends, my learned friends have commented with respect to um, the statement being found voluntary and therefore as a result even if there had been a 10b breach it ought not be excluded because it would not affect trial fairness uh, and in my respectful submission when dealing with section 10b rights uh, that cannot be the case as then any breach of um, section 10b rights which don't also include a finding of involuntariness would negate the requirement or the need for a section 24-2 analysis. Uh, my learned friend, the intervener for British Columbia, uh, Attorney General, suggested that quality of advice cannot be a um, basis for a Section 10b breach and I wish to be clear in the case of Mr. Willier the issue is not the content necessarily of the advice but the reasonable opportunity to obtain meaningful advice and that opportunity was not given and is upheld by the record by a again short phone call and a comment of uh, he said, there's not much I can do, it's Sunday, just don't say anything. So it was fully um, appropriate for the trial judge to find there had not been a reasonable opportunity to obtain meaningful legal advice. My friend for the respondent argued that um, the police in this case had done everything they were supposed to do and more. I would. Uh, suggest that that did not occur. Again, 
they did not do what the most important thing was, I submit in this case, was provide the reasonable opportunity to a man who wished to uh, speak to his counsel of choice. He did not get that opportunity. He was not told of that opportunity and the police obligation to hold off in the interim. Thank you. Uh, we will move then on to the McCrimmon case, and I'll invite Mr. McKinnon to address the court. Chief Justice, Justices, the three questions advanced in the Sinclair appeal also are advanced in this appeal. And I respectfully adopt or ask the court to take into consideration my, my submissions on that appeal on this one. There is a significant difference or one additional circumstance that comes into play, and that deals with the counsel of choice. You'll recall that he, again, McCrimmon, was arrested on a Saturday, taken to the police station, uh, given his informational component of the Section 10B, he asked to speak to counsel of his choice and gave the name of the counsel. Uh, the police asked him, well, if we can't get him, should we get a hold of legal aid? And he said, okay, but I prefer my counsel of choice. So the message was left, and then a few moments later, with the counsel of choice, because he wasn't in the office on a Saturday, uh, legal aid was called, and a five-minute conversation took place. Uh, between legal aid and uh, the appellant and he said afterwards that he was satisfied with the call and it's clear that he was advised of his right to silence. So I respectfully submit on this appeal that the Section 10B breach are twofold. One, that the police did not make any effort or any attempt to locate the appellant's choice of counsel after his arrest and before the commencement of the interrogation. Could you tell me what that means? I, I know that you talked about tracking down the home phone number and things. So is that what you're talking about? Yes. When, so when somebody has a counsel of choice, it is the duty of the police to make subsequent efforts when preliminary efforts fail? Yes, and I want to take you to the segment uh, uh, of the transcript, uh, Justice Abella, that demonstrates that no effort was made by the police except to call the office on a Saturday after having, arrest, after having arrested him on a Saturday when counsel generally aren't in, some counsel aren't, but others are, in their office. Why wouldn't it be the accused duty to diligently try to find and I'm going to show you from the record that he has no he has no ability to do that and he say I'd like you to see if you can find a home number uh, no but the I'll take you to the transcript with it with the police officer basically answered all those questions on cross-examination uh, because I, I submit that on the authorities of this court Prosper Bartle there was a, a failure on the part of the police officers at that initial stage to make the additional effort to find counsel of choice. And the second uh, breach of Section 10 is that the officer failed to suspend the interrogation 
to provide the appellant with the additional opportunity to have legal advice from his counsel of choice after a number of demands for that. So those are the two breaches. Just before I get to that, if I may, for the court, I wish to abandon two arguments that I have in my factum. <clears throat> One deals with paragraphs 52 and 56, and that is on the question of whether or not the appellant understood that he had the right to silence uh, after that call. Um, the trial judge made a clear finding of fact. My learned friend points that out, and I accept that at that point. The second argument I wish to abandon is that paragraph 66 to 73, the argument that there may have been a change in the, in the nature of the jeopardy of the investigation when a, f a photograph was shown near the end uh, going into another channel. And I abandon that because there's not sufficient merit for this court to consider. <clears throat> I'm going to take you and use a little of my time to go through the transcript here because I say the transcript in itself of this initial period when the officer was trying to uh, make the calls and then during the interrogation where the appellant was asking, asserting his right and asking to speak to counsel of his choice, his counsel, because he hadn't had that opportunity. The transcript itself is a powerful argument, I submit, in support of the position being advanced uh, today that there were Section 10 breaches. But there's a further point I ask you to take note of when I take you through a few of these passages, and that is what is becoming commonplace in these types of interrogations, and you've seen Sinclair this morning and McCrimmon, but it's the same. The police are giving advice about the legal rights. They are, in effect, inserting themselves into the role of counsel and explaining away their rights. At the same time, very highly skilled interrogators are manipulating the individual to try to persuade him to speak. And there's a real concern, and I ask the court to consider it, that there's such a definite conflict of interest here with the police officer taking over the role of defense counsel, that it's something that should not be countenanced by this court. So it's with those three aspects in mind that I ask you to turn to tab two of the condensed book. And page 27. This is his comment to or the constable's comment, you'll see the flag part there, the middle of the page, page 27. Constable says to the appellant, yep, if we can't get a hold of Mr. Cheevers, should we be calling legal aid? Well, yes, definitely, but I, I prefer Mr. Cheevers. So he accepts legal aid in answer to one of Mr. Justice Rothstein's questions earlier, but he prefers counsel of choice. And if I could take you over to page 166 in that same tab, is the cross-examination of the officer with respect to what efforts he made to contact counsel of choice. And this is in response to Justice Abella's question. So it's at page 166. I want to take you from line 27 through to page 167, line 32. Line 27, page 166. Question. 
He's shuffling it off to someone else. I'm afraid, you see, what concern, this is the cross-examination of the officer. What concerns me is you knew when you phoned my office, so this was Mr. Cheevers, that I wasn't going to be there Saturday. Isn't that right? I assumed that being a weekend, right? Question. And you never bothered to find out if this guy lives in Vancouver? You know, if you look at the white, you go to the white pages, you'll find a phone number, a home phone, but you never bothered to do that, no. Why? I'm not really in the practice of phoning people at home on the weekends, never. But you knew he wanted me. Why didn't you make an effort to get me? Well, I left a message and assumed that you would call first thing Monday morning. In the meantime, he would, that's how you know, that's, he's in custody for 36 hours if he was detained. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't do that himself because he didn't have any control over your phone books, isn't that correct? Correct. Okay, and he couldn't indeed dial out because you do the dialing, right? Okay, so you decided at that point in time, well, you know, something will give him to legal aid. That was, in my opinion, the second best thing that we could do at that point. Like I said, I'm, you know, in 15 years, I'm not cons convinced that a whole lot of lawyers want to be phoned at home on their days off, and so I didn't do that. I left a message, and that was, you know, with the understanding that you would be in touch with him Monday. In 15 years, you've, got, you've never put a, got a lawyer in on the office on Saturday, have you? No. And as situations go, you will agree with me that this was a rather serious offense. Yes, okay. It's not your average impaired driving, etc. Question. And you knew he wanted to get to me, and you had the ability of finding me, and you didn't do it. Correct? Correct. Now, I say in that situation, there's an obligation to hold off the interrogation until Monday to permit him an opportunity to have contact with his counsel of choice. So there is a Section 10 breach right there. Following that, as I say, he had a five-minute telephone call with uh, legal aid. Following that, there was a search of his car in which incriminating evidence was uh, obtained. I could then ask you to go to tab four on the second page in that index, or the excerpt. This is at the beginning of his interrogation uh, some five hours later. So it's page 11, and midway down from the sidebar, where DM says, I've talked to duty counsel, I guess it's called. You talked to duty counsel, okay, so I don't need to know what you guys talked about, but how did that go? Uh, no, pretty good. Uh, yeah, apparently just told me not to say anything. So that was the advice that he disclosed. Then if I take you a little further on in the interrogation to the next tab at tab five, to the sidebar portion, or just the DM, it says, oh, I want to talk to my lawyer, sir, sorry. So I don't feel I should have to say anything without, I haven't even consulted a lawyer besides that. Uh, but you understand you don't have to talk to me, right? No, I don't understand that. Okay, well, part of the advice along the way is that you need not say anything. So you don't have to talk to me today if you don't want to. Yeah, until I have consultation with my lawyer. I just, I'm not going to say anything. Okay, but you're, but you're clear on that part, that, that I don't have to talk. That's right. And then over to the next tab, six, at page 38. And this is where we get into more 
legal advice by the constable. Middle of the page, the sidebar, no but. I don't what the hell is going on right now, and I don't want to say anything till I've at least had an, a chance to consult with my lawyer, or at least, okay, well, let me have him, right, let me, uh, there's just, there's a couple of things that you have thrown out here I want to clear up. In Canada, by saying this, I'm not saying that I'm guilty or not, okay, no. I know my charter rights, okay, and my charter rights, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm owed at least given the opportunity to have counsel present, or at least, okay, consult with counsel. Well... Let me correct you on that. Let me correct you on that, okay? In Canada, you know a lot of people make that mistake in the States, you're right. You have the right to have a lawyer present and all that stuff. It's different there. In Canada, you have the right to exercise counsel or exercise the right to retain and instruct counsel, yeah? And then he goes on to explain what he says the right is. That's what that was, right? And there's, there's the important part of that, and that's, he's referring to the right to counsel, is that you know why you are here. And we've explained that. And I disagree with it, but I'm here regardless. Okay, you don't have to agree with that. And then he says, and the second part of that is that you don't have to say anything, and I know that. And then at the bottom of the page, he reminds him that he has the choice, and you know what you've done. You have a choice, right, as to whether you want to choose, choose to talk to me or not. It's the choice that you make, right, as an adult. And then on to the next page, it carries on in the same vein, speaking about his rights, uh, wanting to make clear that there isn't the right to have counsel in the, in the room, and the appellant saying, well, it doesn't make much sense to him. And then the final tab, if I may uh, take you to... Is, is there anything in tab six or that we've read so far that is inaccurate or misleading in any way? Well, that portion that I took you to, Justice Abella, at page 39, um, the middle of the page where he's... he's just told him about the right to retain and instruct counsel, and then he says, and that's what that was, right? And there's the important part of that is that you know why you are here. Well, that's true under 10A, but the right to counsel also is, as the discussion has gone all day, is the right to be informed by counsel of his legal rights and how to exercise them. Well, I know that, but what we're reading here is, I thought, Mr. McCrimmon, asking that his counsel be present and a discussion from the police about why that doesn't happen in Canada but it does in the States. Uh, Am I wrong about that? No, that's part of it. So is there anything that he says in the context of that discussion? Not in the context of that, okay. no. But the point I wish to make there, just on the, on the question that you raised, Justice Abel, is that that portion there isn't limited to just the presence of counsel in the interrogation room. He's also talking about his right to counsel there his right to retain and instruct counsel, and then he explains that as being the important part of that is knowing why you're here. And then goes on and, and he says the other important part of that is knowing that you don't have to say anything. And I'm, I'm simply saying that there's more to it than that. So he should have said well, nothing? No, he could have. Well, I, yes, on that point, it's a very important point, uh, Justice Abella, because that is why I had understood we had the Section 10B right to counsel, the charter right, that that is the job of the lawyer, to get in touch with the individual detained and explain. And when there is confusion about the rights, I respectfully submit it's not for the police officer, from his perspective, 
and his conflict of interest to try to clear up whatever confusion is in the mind. There is the time to stop the interrogation and say, I think you'd better have another talk with your lawyer so that you understand at least from the person who's representing you what your rights are rather than getting a diluted or a view of the law that's coming from a police officer who has his own responsibilities and obligations. So, If you look at page 40 of tab 6, yes. uh, middle of the top answer, uh, statement rather, question by the police officer, he's referring there, I assume, to the right to have counsel present. Yes. He says it's problematic in Canada because that lawyer kind of, well, there, there's a case law that, first of all, it's not my practice. And there's a law that says that doesn't happen. It seems to me that that's capable of being misunderstood to signify that a law prohibits it, prohibits the presence. And that would put an, so not only should the police officer not be giving advice, uh, but I take your point to be um, as well that if the police officer is simply restating what is an uncontroversial uh, matter of law, then perhaps no offense should be taken, although one ought to continue to respect the principle that legal advice, correct or incorrect, should come from the lawyer. But certainly the police officer should not be permitted to give the kind of legal advice that's contained in uh, the part of the transcript that I've just read to you. Yes, and just on that point, and I don't wish to cross over from the two appeals, but in tab three of the Sinclair materials, in the cross-examination of the officers, he is cross-examined on a RCMP manual for interrogation, articles contributed to by Crown Council in Ontario, where they point out from time to time it might be advisable to let the lawyer come in and sit down and also point out that it's reasonable access during an interrogation to counsel may not be such a bad thing. So that was the point of view then, as opposed to the point of view of the counsel today. But the, the point that Justice Abella and Justice Fisher raised, I submit, is very fundamental to these appeals, and that is the role of the police officer during the interrogation with respect to advising the individual of his rights. Are you inviting us to reconsider Oikel? Otis? Okay. Oikel. Methods, techniques? Well, I'd like to, but I'm not here. And, uh, on this appeal, um, I say for the role of the police officer today, it should be limited to what it was pre-charted. We had no difficulty pre-charter for those who were, of us who were around. The, the police officer gave the double warning to the individual at the outset, whether he was in or out of custody. He had the right to remain silent, and anything he did say could be used against him, and that was it. You never saw interrogations that are 
coming before this court back then, the officer repeating throughout about how it was his choice to make and he had the right to silence and things of that nature. And there was a very fine dividing line between what was the police officer's responsibility and counsel's responsibility before him. And I invite the court on that point to, yes, to put a shorter leash on the right of the police officer to engage in the kind of practices that are going on here. Because there's the additional danger, as I mentioned, the manipulative aspect. These officers so highly skilled in interrogation and trained. If you have the time to, to look at the interrogation and read this, you will see how they weave through their, through their interrogation techniques with charter rights. And I say that is a danger and inappropriate for the police officer. I, I suspect there was manipulation pre-charter as well. Uh, well, that takes me to the point, Chief Justice, is why we do have the charter and, and, the, and 10B, to give us that additional protection that we say uh, the suspect should have uh, in the interrogation. If I could just ask you to take, take you to one last point passage there, tab 7, carrying on, this is page 45, the sidebar there, this is the second page, the previous page he says he's not going to answer a question, and then at the bottom, okay, because they've never been there, uh, no comment, I really want to speak to a lawyer, please, okay, well, you've done that, yeah, okay, you've done that, well, duty counsel, I haven't spoken to my own lawyer, Okay, well, again, my understanding is, you know, you've exercised your right. And you were satisfied, and you've understood your rights. So, you know, I fulfilled my obligation to you, and I'm not saying that to be an to etc. <laughs> and then the next sidebar, okay. Well-phrased I... legal advice. <laughs> Okay, can I go back to my cell, please? A question that was asked earlier this morning about the other appeal. Mm, no, I'm not going to answer no more questions. And then the final one is at page 51, tab 9. The officer is asking him questions, and then just the last line in the middle of the page, the officer is saying... But you know what's missing in this, referring to the explanation by the appellant. You know what's missing in this, Russ? You know what's missing big time? Answer, my lawyer. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yes. No, what's missing? What's missing in that is my lawyer. How do you figure that? Because I'm sitting here vulnerable without any representation. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the legal ways. And again at tab 10, page 53, the officer says at the sidebar, don't let people be your voice for you, Russ. That's, what, that's what's happening here. You're letting other people be your voice for you. That's fine because my voice, you know, you're letting these people will be heard. My voice will be heard in the end with my lawyer. That's all I got to say. 
I know you know what, I know what you're saying, but do you know what? Until I have legal representation, yeah, it's important. It's in my interest because I'm not going to say anything more and I'm not trying to be, no, you're not. And then the final one is at table 11. After further questions, he says, it's like I just, I just want to talk to my lawyer. That's all I'm going to say. You've talked to that, okay? Okay, okay. I'm adamant about that, he says. Question, you certainly have a right. Okay, Russ, you have a right to uh, exercise your right to remain silent, but you don't have to keep repeating it. I get to that, okay? So no sweat. That okay? Did you understand? A Coke would be great. That, I respectfully submit, is a strong factual foundation for this court to find that there was a Section 10B breach during the course of the interrogation, when the interrogation was not suspended uh, to permit a delay in the interrogation until Monday, when the lawyer would have been back and had an opportunity to speak with him. There are a couple of additional points I wish to make, and one is on the choice of counsel. And it goes to a question of Justice Rothstein and, and, and Justice Sharon earlier. There's no question but that when he was asked if he'd take, legal, take a call from legal aid, he said okay, but he would prefer his counsel of choice. But in these circumstances, I respectfully submit, if you interpret the words of the section to retain and instruct counsel, there's nothing wrong with him getting preliminary legal advice from his lawyer because he is in that vulnerable situation. But if he has exercised his right to speak to counsel of his choice, then I say the police should be under an obligation to hold off on their interrogation until they've made reasonable opportunities to locate him. And so the two go together. They're not one instead of the other. And I think that is sometimes, I say with respect, uh, overlooked the meaning of the words retain and instruct counsel. Uh, Justice Cromwell in an earlier decision in, in Regina versus Grouse that I've referred to in at paragraph 75 in my factum states that the right to retain and instruct counsel means at least the right to have a lawyer of the detainee's choice, the right to hire a lawyer. So I say in these circumstances, fine, take the call from legal aid and have some assistance because of what you're going to encounter, but the police should be under the obligation there because of the words retain and because he wants to speak to the lawyer of his choice. He has an opportunity, he should be having an opportunity to have additional time to engage a contract with his lawyer and get advice from him. There's a couple of things why I say, a couple of reasons why I say that. One beyond the, the, the plain meaning of the words in Section 10B, and that is the comfort zone an individual has in speaking to counsel of his choice. This court again speaks of the need for confidentiality, trust 
Trust is essential in that relationship. It's much more important if an individual can speak to a lawyer that he knows or at least that he has trust in than a stranger on the phone in five minutes. What about the uh, problem he goes after the lawyer and the lawyer wants a legal aid certificate so they have to go through that rigmarole. Does the hold-off period continue until he can retain the lawyer of his choice? It, it, you know, I can only speak from our province, uh, Justice Binney. In, in British Columbia, it's fairly quickly done. It's, it's, it's not a – we're not – we can talk hours. Contact the legal aid office. Uh, the, the permission is given. So it's not a hold-off of days or, or let alone weeks. It's, it's very efficient, out, at least on the West Coast, in, in ensuring that is done. And so I, I say that the words retain – I ask the court to, to give emphasis to those words in Section 10B because most of the jurisprudence on this issue has been with respect to telephone calls. Does he have the right to talk to a lawyer? Does he have the right to get some advice from a lawyer? But 10B has a broader scope than that. We can only push choice too far because there's a two-way relationship. Maybe the council's busy. Maybe the council doesn't, of his choice doesn't want to take the case. Maybe the council of his choice is on holiday. Yes. Uh, what limits do you put on this right to choose uh, the council that whom you wish? Just a reasonable opportunity. A reasonable opportunity to, in this case, track him down, find him. Uh, because as it's also contextual, but I say a reasonable opportunity to track him down if he's out of the country, obviously he doesn't have the right to insist on counsel of his choice and hold off the interrogation. But with a few phone calls or with a 24 or 48-hour period of delay in the interrogation, I say he should be entitled to speak to the lawyer of the choice. And in this case, again, as with the others, there was no urgency in the investigation. There was no need to proceed on the date on Saturday to uh, interrogate him. If we give the meaning to retain that you're urging us to do, doesn't that make Section 10B a guarantee that you can have a lawyer, which we've we have the no. guarantee to retain a lawyer, I guess? No. Well, with respect, I, I say no. I, I, I say this Court went into that a little in Prosper, uh, Chief Justice Lemaire's decision as to the Bridges Line, whether it was going to insist on a Bridges Line in every province. Uh, I say no, uh, Justice Sharon. There's no guarantee. He has the, the right, if he has private funds, he can retain. If he's eligible for legal aid, he can obtain. But he has to take the initiative and find some means of, of retaining a lawyer. I don't see it as a, insisting that the state then come in and and you say the, the, if the detainee indicates that he wants to speak to a lawyer by name yes. uh, and then he speaks to legal aid, that the police would have an obligation to hold off. I believe that that was your submission. Would there be uh, an obligation on the detainee to say that he still wants to wait for lawyer number one? Because I, I'm thinking lawyer of choice. It could be the name of a lawyer that the detainee knows and trusts. It could be the name of a lawyer that he knows the name but has never had any contact with that lawyer, and to him it really doesn't make any difference if it's the lawyer of choice and the duty counsel he speaks to. So how, without getting into the content of these conversations, how are the police going to know to hold off? The minute a name is said? Well, the, I, I say the, 
just as with an exercise in the right under 10B, if he says, I want to contact counsel um, or speak to a lawyer, if, if he says, I want to speak to John Cheevers in, in this case, I don't think the, and that's my lawyer of choice, I don't think the police should have to go any further to hold off. They, they, they should respect his choice. If they find out it's a bogus name, obviously that's a different circumstance. But if, if, this, if this person says he wants lawyer X, then I say yes, the police should hold off to make proper inquiries to see if he's available to come down or at least speak. Should the lawyer offer legal aid as well? Or we got into that question in, in the previous appeal, because it seems the minute there's a, a name out there that there's a duty to hold off, never mind offering a, a legal aid number, because that could be perceived as a, a, a violation of the detainee's right to the counsel of his choice. I'm just trying to get yes, some yes. Pra practical guidance out yes. there. Is the minute the name is said, that's the end. You hold off until that lawyer appears. No, because the example I gave earlier, with respect to Justice Rothstein's question, and hopefully in response to yours, I say there's nothing wrong with having initial preliminary contact with a legal aid lawyer. Um, he's in that vulnerable situation. Best for him to be told at that stage there may be a cell plant. Okay, you want to speak with your lawyer of choice? Okay, fine, we're going to. It's just the holding off of the interrogation, I uh, say. Well, is there another aspect where uh, access to duty counsel um, is offered or advocated by a police officer in order to prevent or at least dissuade the detainee from exercising his or her right to counsel, in that circumstance it may become yes. offensive, at least arguably. Yes, thank you, Justice Fish. And it's coming close to that in this particular mm -hmm. passage here where uh, he, was, he, he was offered legal aid, uh, suggested legal aid, and four minutes later the call was made through legal aid. So there's a, a bit of a factual pattern there. I would like to take you to a second prong of this argument on, on this appeal, and that is uh, with respect to the material change in circumstances from the time that uh, the appellant received his five-minute call with the lawyer to the point where he was asking for his lawyer during the course of the in interrogation. And to do that, if I could just set it up by taking you to the reasons uh, for judgment of the uh, the ruling, pardon me, of the trial judge, which is at tab 14 at page 24. And if I could just take you to paragraph 180. Uh, Sorry, paragraph 82 first. So this is tab 14, page 24, paragraph 82. Mr. Cheevers suggests as well that the accused was denied his right to counsel of choice as a result of the police arresting him on a Saturday when they knew it would be unlikely that he would be able to reach the lawyer he preferred. The onus of proving a charter breach rests on Mr. Crimmon. The test is a balance of prob probabilities. Mr. McCrimmon did not present any evidence on the voir dire. There's nothing in the evidence presented other than Corporal Matthew agreeing on cross-examination 
with a question by Mr. Cheevers that it would be unlikely for a lawyer to answer his phone on Saturday, which would indicate such a motive on the part of the police. If I could just stop there <clears throat> for a moment. In effect, the trial judge and the BC Court of Appeal rejected the submission that there was a right to counsel of choice. Their view was that if he has access to preliminary legal advice with legal aid counsel, that's sufficient prior to the interrogation or during the interrogation. And I say that runs counter to this Court's decisions in, in Ross, Bartle, and Burlingham. But the point, the passage I want to take you to is the next one, of paragraph 85. Mr. McCrimmon's charter rights under 10b were satisfied when he consulted with the lawyer from legal aid. He had all the information he needed when he spoke to counsel in order to instruct counsel, and he was satisfied with the advice he received. Well, all the information he had when he spoke to his legal aid counsel from the record is were the charges. And there's no, nothing in the record to indicate that the legal aid lawyer had any information. So that it was on the basis of his arrest on these charges that the legal advice was given in this five-minute telephone call. During the course of this interrogation, there was disclosure, as there is in many of the interrogations, of additional evidence, of what evidence the police were relying on. In addition, in this case, the search of the motor vehicle that occurred after the call with the lawyer and before the interrogation, they started showing him what they had found in his car. I submit that is a material change of circumstances which should entitle an individual to access his lawyer again for further legal advice. That's similar to the jeopardy aspect, but it's on the other side of the ledger. And I see there's no distinction in principle. This court has said time and time again, if during an investigation it shifts direction and there's another potential liability out there, the police officers must stop, recharter, and give another opportunity. That's the obligation on the part of the police. And it's because of the change of circumstances in effect. Here there's no difference in principle. There's, more, there's a material change of circumstances. The accused is now looking at a situation, hearing additional information from the police officer that he didn't know when he first spoke with the lawyer. And I say on that basis, he should be permitted on the basis of your jeopardy jurisprudence in this court to access a lawyer. I don't have it in the McCrimmon materials, but it's in the Sinclair materials, the passage from Justice, Chief Justice Lemaire's decision in Smith, which is found at tab 14, and it's page 386. And this is where you may recall Smith had not been diligent in exercising his right to counsel, and then he got into the interrogation and he wanted to uh, access counsel. And the court's decision at that time um, was that he wasn't entitled to suspend the interrogation because he hadn't been diligent before. But what the Chief Justice said uh, there bears repeating on this issue. If I could just read it to you, it's in the Sinclair materials at tab 14. The fact that the appellant subsequently during the questioning reiterated his intention to speak with his lawyer before saying anything with respect to the robbery for which he was charged does not change my conclusion. 
and arrested a detained person who has had a reasonable opportunity to communicate with counsel but who was not diligent in the exercise of this right cannot subsequently require the police to suspend one more time the investigation or the questioning. The principle, however, does not apply when the circumstances that exist when he asks subsequently to exercise the right are substantially different from those which existed when he had the opportunity to communicate with a lawyer. Such would be the case, for example, he, he says, for example, where a person believes he's being accused of having disturbed the public peace but learns during the questioning that he would possibly be accused of murder. So the Chief Justice there is pointing out that, yes, where there's a change of jeopardy, if he then wants to talk to counsel, he can access it. But he's not saying those are the only circumstances in which an individual can access counsel. And I say that provision in itself supports the appellant's uh, submission to this court that where there is that material change of circumstances from the initial telephone call to the uh, interrogation, he should be entitled to access counsel. My final point simply is... Before you go on, Mr. McKinnon, could I just ask you one question? Your uh, position on counsel of choice seems to be premised on the notion that the implementation duty and the, right, the duty to hold off always go together. Why should that be so? The implement, the, as to advising him that he has the right to counsel? No, saying that you have the right to counsel of choice and making reasonable efforts to find that person, but you seem to say that that goes hand in glove with the duty to hold off for a reasonable period. Yes. After you've had initial legal advice, where uh, the duty to hold yes. off applied, why should the duty to hold off automatically go with the additional aspect of counsel of choice? Because of the point, uh, Justice Cromwell, that I was making uh, with respect to the confidence in the relationship uh, with, between a counsel of choice and the, and, and the suspect. I think that's very important, that the individual have the opportunity to have a, a good discussion with the person that he has confidence in before he goes into the interrogation. Even if it's a person, Ollie, he's heard their name on TV or perhaps on webcast. You may have a, a large following in Muscadabat Harbor, Nova Scotia. Mr. Yes. Even if, yes, um, because, because I say to, to go beyond that gets into um, particulars, especially on this, in this case, which don't apply because counsel did know he had at least used him once before and had some element of trust there. But it's, it's that element of trust that I say is so important between counsel and, and the suspect which should require the officers to hold off. And it goes to an earlier question that Justice uh, Abella or Justice Rothstein were asking about why these short minute calls. Now, we as defense counsel have a much greater responsibility now with respect to the suspects uh, to, to take the time, to make the effort, to go down and, and see them and, and ex explain things. What goes on in the Bridges line is a person is answering the phone from all throughout the jurisdiction uh, and giving preliminary advice, as in this case, keep your mouth tight. 
don't say anything. And perhaps counsel, and I don't say perhaps just to this court, but I say it to defense counsel out on the West Coast, we have a greater responsibility given the ability of the police officers now to interrogate the way they do to give fuller advice. But I say that doesn't detract from the arguments that we are advancing here today, that we should at least be protected by the charter to have the hold-off uh, of the interrogation until we've had that opportunity to have contact with our client. Just on the final point, uh, you'll note that I do raise an argument with respect to the voluntariness uh, issue, and my friend takes issue with that or responds saying, well, I'm challenging a finding of fact or that attack on the finding of fact really isn't open to me. I just wish to clarify my position, and perhaps it wasn't as clear as it should be in the factum, but I am simply submitting that on this Section 10b argument, if this court finds that there was a breach, then I say that's a relevant factor that the learned trial judge should have taken or should have taken into consideration in the assessment of voluntariness. And so on the question of finding of voluntariness, yes, fact-driven, but if there was a relevant factor that wasn't taken into account, obviously an appellate court can intervene, and it's on that purpose only that I raise the issue of voluntariness. Those are my submissions. Court will uh, take a 10-minute break, and then we'll be back to conclude the appeals. Ms. Ainsley? Chief Justice and Justices, um, recognizing that I'm at the end of um, a long day and a number of the issues have been covered, I'm going to try not to repeat them. Uh, what I would like to emphasize, and I, I believe that my response factum uh, it re reflects this, is the importance of the fact-finding process that a trial judge engages in and the details of a record and arguments that are presented to a trial judge and resolved by them. Because it's the respondent's submission that um, much of the, many of the issues raised touch on that important role of the judge as fact finder. On that note, I'd like to start by speaking of the facts, although obviously in a limited context because of the ban. But just to point out with respect to the charges that Mr. McCrimmon was facing, the first charge was a common assault that took place sometime between August 2005, the month, the entire month. The second charge took place sometime again in August against a different complainant. The third charge before the judge took place in September, again against a different complainant. And then charges four, five, and six, which became the subject of the appeal, those are the matters in which um, he was ultimately convicted of, dealt with the uh, complainant CI, as I refer to her, and those dates were particularized as November the 3rd, 2005. That was a particular date. And the, um, th this is set on my factum as well. The um, information is in um, the uh, record at uh, page 72. And then the last two charges took place on the 13th of November, 2005, relating to um, TM. And what, what the, the police were confronted with was essentially some form of escalating conduct. And as it was a result of the November, the particularized offenses that caused them to go back, do further 
um, uh, investigation. And that's when they discovered about this incident with RB, and that's when they discovered about uh, an incident at a 7-Eleven, which allowed them to um, build a case, essentially, against Mr. McCrimmon. And I say this because we have to put much of what we're dealing with in these hearings in the context of the police conduct while in the course of an active investigation. I say that is certainly vis-a-vis -vis their, um, the council of choice issue, um, and I say that's as well the question of whether or not the police can investigate by speaking to the person who they believe knows most about the offense, in this case being Mr. McCrimmon. So we have these uh, earlier incidents that were sort of uh, spread out throughout a month. There, there hadn't been a report about them, and then later uh, things escalated and became more serious. The offenses uh, turned into assault with uh, bodily harm, and one was a sexual assault. So things were um, uh, heating up, so to speak, in the investigation. That culminated in a situation where Mr. McCrimmon was identified as the suspect. Corporal Matthews speaks to the... Um, investigation that was uh, done, uh, that they had to get materials together for a search warrant and why the arrest was done on this particular day. And ultimately, he was arrested that day. So this is the, the situation that the police are investigating. And on that, before getting to the particular legal issues, I'd like to speak to some of the findings of fact that the judge made, having heard the evidence in this case. And I'm, uh, my factum at paragraph 8, I set out the um, relevant facts. Now the first um, bullets, if I can just uh, briefly read them from the ruling, the, and this is at the top of page four of my factum. Uh, the, the judge has recognized in his ruling the appellant was arrested on a Saturday at 11.37 a.m. He was informed of the reason for his arrest and that he had a right to retain and instruct counsel. He was advised he could call any lawyer he wanted. And he was advised of the 24-hour telephone service which provides a legal aid duty lawyer. Just to digress, he's advised he can call any lawyer and that he can get in touch with a, call, a lawyer immediately. The appellant advised he did wish to call a lawyer and gave the police a lawyer's name, Mr. Cheevers. There was some discussion about whether Mr. Cheevers would answer the phone on a Saturday. Corporal Matthew looked up Mr. Cheevers' office number and called it. She left a message on his answering machine to call the detachment. She did not look for Mr. Cheevers' home telephone number, nor was she asked by the appellant to do so. Corporal Matthew asked the appellant if she could call legal aid for him as she could not get a hold of Mr. Cheevers. The appellant responded, well, yes, definitely, but I prefer Mr. Cheevers. Corporal Matthew placed a call to legal aid, and the appellant spoke to a lawyer for approximately five minutes. After this call, there was a further discussion in which the appellant said in relation to the message left for Cheevers, I don't know if I'll hear back from him. Like I said, I only used him once. He's the only guy I know. I've never really dealt with a lawyer before. The appellant agreed with Corporal Matthew that he had spoken to legal aid and that he was satisfied with that and that he understood what he had been told. The call from legal aid ended at 12.20 p.m. At 5.05 p.m., Sergeant Prue took the appellant to the interview. Sergeant Prue confirmed with the appellant that he had spoken to counsel. And if I could just go to the uh, respondent's condensed book and turn to um, tab uh, 7 of the condensed book, this is where uh, Corporal Matthew is speaking to um, uh, the respondent. And at page... Um, 158 is the support in the record for what I've just read, which is simply Mr. McCrimmon saying on page 158, 
I don't know if I'll hear back from him, meaning Mr. Cheevers. And then on the next page, right, that's right, okay, so you did speak to someone. I spoke to legal aid. Yep. Uh, Officer, okay, and that was good with you? You're satisfied with that? Yeah, yep. Officer, okay, did you understand everything they told you? Um, apparently, if I'm under arrest, I have 24 hours before I go in front of a judge, and then there's further discussion. So he's expressing satisfaction with having spoken to duty counsel and satisfaction with the advice. So I say that the, 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 these facts are very important, and they were before the trial judge. He came to conclusions, and I've set them out here in his ruling. And ultimately, on that basis, he concluded that the individual had exercised his right to counsel. So that sort of summarizes uh, the respondent's submission vis-a-vis -vis the right to counsel of choice issue. With respect to the next issue, which is before this court, which is what the, the officer was obliged, what Sergeant Pooh was obliged to do in the interview, I'd like to speak again to page four of my factum where I've summarized what are the relevant factual findings of the trial judge. Um, Sergeant Prue confirmed that the appellant knew he did not have to say anything, but that anything he did say could be used in evidence. There were a number of parts of the interview in which the appellant made reference to not wanting to speak or to say anything or to answer questions until he had consulted with his lawyer. Now, the interpretation of that in the respondent's submission is that this was the, the respondent deflecting questions about the offense. He was deflecting questions about the offense. The trial, the trial judge noted that at one point in the interview, Mr. McCrimmon said to Sergeant Prue, I don't mind talking to you. In other words, he indicated that he didn't mind talking to the officer. He didn't want to talk or answer. He did not want to answer the particular questions that were being put to him. And he exercised his right not to answer those questions. To the extent that he indicated he wanted to speak to his lawyer, it was, in the respondent's submission, deflecting questions about the offense. And it was in the context of my lawyer will deal with this. The my lawyer will, will, will give, um, assess the credibility of these uh, women who are, are saying um, that I've committed this offense. In other words, it's the respondent's submission that the respondent himself understood the essential distinction between these sort of initial situation that he's in. He, he had an initial need for legal advice, and he exercised it through duty counsel. He wanted to speak to a lawyer, and he exercised a choice of 24-hour counsel. And then in the interview, he was saying, yes, my lawyer will deal with that. He understood that there are different stages. There is an, a, a preliminary, immediate, investigative stage, and then there's a later stage, and that's a trial stage. And, and I'll, I'll get later to um, the part of... Um, uh, well, in fact, I can do that now. It's actually in my friend's uh, condensed book at tab 16. Um, is an excerpt from Ross. And it's a, a quote here of um, then-Judge uh, Lemaire. And uh, it's sidebarred here by my friend. It said, it must be noted, as this court said in Tremblay, a detainee must be reasonably diligent in the exercise of these rights. And if he is not, the correlative duties imposed on the police and set out in Mananin are suspended. Reasonable diligence in the exercise of the right to choose one counsel depends on the context facing the accused or detained person. On being arrested, for example, the detained person is faced with an immediate need for legal advice and must exercise reasonable diligence accordingly. 
By contrast, when seeking the best lawyer to conduct a trial, the accused person faces no such immediacy. Nevertheless, accused or detained persons have a right to choose their counsel and it's only if the lawyer chosen cannot be available within a reasonable time, the detainee or the accused should be expect, expected to exercise the right to counsel by calling another lawyer. This distinction, the, the, the immediate need for legal advice and the, 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 the immediacy of the police being entitled to investigate crimes are to be contrasted with the later situation when the individual is consulting counsel or otherwise making decisions about his trial strategy. To get back then to the findings of fact on, um, listed on page four of my factum, um, just um, again, these are in the ruling what the trial judge said, I'm at the third last bullet. The trial judge noted, the appellant often refused to answer questions and stated that he wished to speak to counsel but continued with the interview. And then I have a note, however, um, he told Sergeant Prue, I don't mind talking to you. There was no evidence on the voir dire that the police arrested him on a Saturday because they knew it would be unlikely that he would be able to, that he would not be able to reach, it would be unlikely that he would be able to reach the lawyer he preferred. Sergeant Prue was not aggressive in the least. He used a calm tone of voice and appeared comforting at points late in the interview when the appellant was crying and had his head in his hands. The interview was not a grilling. The appellant was treated professionally and with respect throughout his interview with Sergeant Prue. The appellant had an operating mind. Sergeant Prue confirmed the appellant's right to silence on a number of occasions. There was no question that the appellant was clear as to and understood the right to silent. silence. The appellant clearly discerned which questions put him in jeopardy and indicated he did not wish to answer those questions. Not only did the accused understand his right to silence, he exercised that right on a number of occasions during the interview. Ultimately, the appellant made a statement. It's a response submission that those are important factual findings. It, it's, it's demonstrating voluntariness. It's demonstrating that there wasn't a violation of the right to silence. And requests for counsel in the respondent's submission can't be used in a, in a way to essentially uh, substitute for what this court has said in Singh is not a right to stop an interview by saying, I don't want to speak to you further. And on that note, I would like then to speak to the first issue um, presented by my friend, which is what is in fact the scope of the, the right to counsel when an individual is asserting it uh, during a inter an interview. Now, the Crown, um, you've heard, is, takes the position that Section 10B provides protection against self-incrimination through access to counsel before an interview and in very limited circumstances during an interview. Section 10B in the respondent's submission does not create a right not to be interviewed. It is, in the respondent's submission, important to remember the question of choice that has so dominated so much of the jurisprudence of this court. Choice to speak, making an informed choice whether or not to participate. And there are statements in Oikel, there are statements in Singh, there, there are, it's, it's well established that people do choose to speak and they choose to speak for different reasons. In Smith, um, there was a reference to the fact uh, in that decision as well, people choose to speak. So that is um, what this individual did. He, he chose to speak. The question then with respect to 10B is first what the police have to tell the suspect, which is the informational component. 
What the police have to do in this respect is essentially a precondition. That's what now Justice Trotter calls it in his article that has been referred to in the materials. And then we have what happens during the interview, and this is where the, the parties are so divided. My friend is arguing that there is a right to have a counsel present or a right to have continuing access to counsel on demand. Now, in the respondent's submission, those submissions, and Justice Rothstein, you addressed this um, early, earlier today, they are the access on demand and having counsel present are functionally almost the same thing. What they are, are having essentially counsel's participation in the interrogation process, unlimited participation in the interrogation process. And that seemed to be what the interveners seem to be also suggesting. The interveners are purporting to limit access to counsel. They say it's not unlimited. It's limited by the need of the individual. That, that to me, that is in the response submission, it's the need. That, that is the, the, the way in which that test was articulated. I know there are, um, there are a list of circumstances that could be considered um, as set out in the um, intervener uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, which are unworkable in the respondent's submission. And my um, colleague um, spoke to this earlier. It's the unworkability of just this general need sort of categorization that has caused this court to set out limits. It's caused, it's, it, it is why the jurisprudence of this court, and it's set out in uh, the Sinclair factum, and I've adopted those submissions for the respondent in my, in the respondent McCrimmon's factum, that there need to be concrete limits. That, that they have to be set out. Now, in my um, factum at, par uh, the McCrimmon factum at paragraph um, 79, I have uh, set out an excerpt from Wood, which uh, captures um, the, the situations that the respondent says this court has identified. Essentially, the status quo that we urge should be maintained and is a workable balance. And this is in Regina and Wood, and I'm going to paraphrase slightly, but I've, cut, I've, I've excerpted this um, from Wood, and it's uh, paragraph 114 is where I start. Circumstances, however, will always govern in every case. So in black, and I add an Evans as well, where the status of the detainee, and I add being a change in the jeopardy, the legal jeopardy, where the status of the detainee had changed or the legal jeopardy had changed, and in the quote uh, RPL, where the police had undertaken to secure counsel upon result, it was held that the police must cease questioning until counsel had been consulted. So those are situations that are identified. Other situations can readily be imagined, as for example, where it is obvious that the detainee does not understand his rights. And we would say that is the rights he was told about in that immediate immediate initial contact with counsel. If it appears that he did not understand those rights, if there's demonstrated evidence that he did not understand those rights, that puts him then back into the position of first instance. Then he is back into never actually having had an opportunity to consult counsel. So where, where it is obvious to read from the quote again, that the detainee does not understand the rights he was told about such as his right to silence and the right not to be self-incriminated. 
and he is seeking further explanation of them, that is another situation because, again, that goes back to not having had an opportunity at all. Thus, the right to counsel can, in certain circumstances, be reactivated. And in the respondent's submission, they must be limited, limited, and clear and concrete. And they must be limited in a way that's consistent with all the, the other principles, such as the right to silence, such as the confessions rule. Thus, you know, the right the, 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 it was argued earlier, I mean, the French version talks about l'assistance d'un avocat. I'm, I'm, I'm it, oh, sorry, pardon me? Sorry. In the French version of the text, it talks about l'assistance d'un avocat, so that there's no time limitation built into it. I mean, this, this notion that uh, at the outset, uh, a one-shot effort that the, the right is spent and is said here has to be reactivated. I don't see where that has a grounding uh, in, in the text of 10b. It's, it's a gloss put on 10b. I think what's being asked is that if you strike off the, the notion of at the outset and, and you acknowledge that there is some right of access to, to counsel, then the question is how to control it. And as you say, that's a very difficult thing to get a handle on what workable standards can be developed. But it seems rather brutal to say, well, uh, because it's difficult to manage, therefore it doesn't exist. When the, when the text seems to suggest it does exist. Well, my, my Lord, the, 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 Justice, the, um, the, the text has certainly been around for many years, and it has, has not supported um, that interpretation. I, I, I believe there's reference to... Well, I, I, I would say that, uh, that perhaps we raised some que questions. My colleague, Justice Fischer, did uh, this morning about the, uh, the French text. We cannot simply read it out. Because it doesn't fit with some interpretation you uh, you advance. Yes, yes, uh, Justice. I, I don't um, I, I don't intend to be to be uh, saying that the words of a statute, as I in accordance with the. It's not it's not a statute. It's the basic yes. law of the yes. of the country. Yes. Um, with respect to the interpretation, um, and it, my, my colleague has set it out earlier, um, the interpretation that, that is, is being urged is one that this court has endorsed in these earlier decisions, again, based on the, the, the French text as well in those situations. Um, with respect to, just to finish this, this excerpt that I've included, the, the um, court in Wood, which held that there was, was not this opportunity, uh, said that subject to such situations, however, the advised detainee does not enjoy the automatic right of cessation of the interview merely upon indicating that he would like to speak to counsel. He who knows of his right to choose participates further in the interrogation of his peril. A detainee always has a right to reasonable opportunity to consult counsel. However, once he is informed, he cannot without more stop an interrogation or investigation merely by purporting to exercise his right to counsel again. He can, of course, stop the interview by exercising his right to maintain silence and thus, thus withdraw further participation anyway. However, the right to counsel is not something that can be asserted without reasonable limit. Police pressure, short of denying the right of choice or of depriving the detainee of an operating mind, does not breach the, light, right, breach the right, right of silence once the detainee has been advised. And this is why, this is why the, the, um, the submission, and I, I've set this out in, in uh, uh, the McCrimmon factum as well, it's in the Sinclair factum, is that the right 
has to be interpreted in its entire uh, context. And in, not only is the jurisprudence uh, support the uh, respondent's submission, but as well we point to the confessions rule as already accounting for the fact that denial of access to counsel. And as well, the right to counsel has to be philosophically compatible with what this court has said in Singh. And it was uh, Mr. Justice Frankel who, uh, who said this first in um, Sinclair and then just coincidentally was the appellate judge on McCrimmon. Uh, there is no policy reason for providing a detainee who does not have the right to terminate an interview by stating, I wish to remain silent, the peremptory right to do so by saying, I want to talk to my lawyer again. And this is what the respondent in this case was doing. It's the respondent's submission. He was deflecting questions. It was his way of exercising his right to silence on those particular issues. Um, at some point. Uh, perhaps uh, not now if it doesn't suit you now. I'd like to hear your response to the submission uh, that the police at a minimum must make some reasonable effort to enable the detained person to exercise their right to counsel of choice. There's no doubt that they have a right to counsel of choice and to a reasonable opportunity to exercise it. And I recall for uh, our joint benefit at page 167, tab 2, police officer says, you knew he wanted to get, I'm sorry, the, the question to the police officer is, you knew he wanted to get to me, you had the ability of finding me, and you didn't do it, correct? And the officer says, correct. Yes. So what is your response to the submission that uh, the police officer in this case made no reasonable effort? to enable the appellant to exercise his right to counsel of choice. And, uh, thank you, Justice. And I will, I will move then on to that uh, subject. Um, just very briefly to wrap up on my, my, the submissions I'm making with respect to endorsing the earlier submissions this court has heard. Um, it is the response submission that the, the articulation as presently endorsed is workable. And I have as well, I. I would like to speak as well to the confessions rule as it applies in this case because it is the manifestation in the respondent's rule of how this factor can be considered. But with respect to the right to counsel of choice, and in, my, um, in the respondent's factum at paragraph uh, 94 is where I set out the when the respondent submission is the existing jurisprudence with respect to uh, reasonable access of counsel to choice, which is that it again is a contextual fact-driven um, analysis. And courts have identified factors for consideration. I have set out what constitutes a reasonable opportunity to retain and instruct counsel of choice for immediate preliminary advice again depends on the facts of each case. The following are some of the matters identified in the case law as relevant and depend on the record from the voir dire. The detainee's contact with alternative counsel, usually duty counsel, 
the expression of satisfaction with the advice received from duty counsel, the level of urgency in the investigation, the pre-existing relationship with the lawyer, the detainee's understanding of his right to silence, and the practical difficulties of assessing, accessing counsel. Those are, are factors that the, the respondent has identified as being ones that the court considers with respect to whether or not there has been a reasonable opportunity to exercise counsel of choice. I would as well like to point to my, um, my friends for the respondent in Willier set out at paragraph 54 of their factum a number of other cases um, that speak to this uh, interaction between access to duty counsel and access to counsel of choice. And where are we now down the road from Bridges and now that there is this 24-hour counsel? Um, in fact, one of the decisions, um, Eakin, it was from Justice Sharon at the uh, Ontario Court of Appeal, Littlefield and Littleford and Richfield, Rich, Richfield or other cases. And it's the response submission that I, I've been through some of the facts and I'd like to go back to them briefly because, uh, again, this is a situation of what facts are in front of the trial judge. And as I started my submissions today with respect to voluntariness, with respect to whether or not there's been a reasonable opportunity, there, there has to be respect for the trial judge as the trier of fact and his assessment of the evidence before him. Part of that is what efforts did the police make and what efforts should they be expected to make on the record? That could be a relevant fact. Now, in this day and age, with phones the way they are, it's, if, if, and there's no evidence, and I, I can't lead this evidence, but, but you can reach a defense lawyer any time by pressing a certain button, by just saying, I'm in custody. Um, and I, a, a colleague of mine was saying the problem was he had people who were in custody, but they'd been in there for years, and they kept phoning him in the middle of the night. And, and so we had to change it if you're immediately in custody. There are, there's a factual, way in which there's a factual, um, uh, facts have to be put before a trial judge. And, and in these facts, in this case, are that the officer got an answering machine. It didn't say, and if you're in custody, phone my home number. It didn't say what effort to make. It didn't say I'll be back on Monday. It didn't say I'll talk to Mr. McCrimmon. It didn't say I'll talk to you on Monday. Oh, and yeah, no, no, just, uh, no I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, but no. The officer knew that uh, not to expect Mr. Chiefers to be at his office. The officer uh, knew that he had easy access or to, to, that he could have reached him otherwise, but made no effort. That's the officer's own evidence. I, I, I don't believe it goes can that read it again. far. It's a, a he didn't, of course he could not have known whether uh, Mr. Cheevers was home at that moment in time, but I understood his evidence to be that he made no effort. She, uh, she, uh, she made no effort. This is page she, 167. Sorry? It's a she, uh, the, the officer. I meant the officer made no effort. Yes. To, yes, I believe it's on page 167. Uh, to and, and, to and contact, sorry? And, and earlier, the trial judge, as, as I referred to, you, um, you knew. Well, I mean, the question is simple. You knew he wanted to get to me. I'm reading from page 167. Yes. You had the ability of finding me, and you didn't do it. Correct. And the evidence is that Mr. Chiefers 
home phone number was in the white pages. Yes, well, he yeah. put that evidence. But, but here the point is that no effort was made. So we don't have to decide what level of reasonableness is required. Yes. No effort was made. Yes. A message was left at a place where the officer had every reason to expect there would be no immediate answer. Um, the officer made no effort to contact the person. And if you look at the factors that you've set out at, uh, at paragraph 94, yes. um, I'm not sure which you advance as being in your favor. The first is contact with alternative counsel. Well, but what happened here is that the evidence of the officer was that the officer decided uh, to give him legal aid as the next best thing. And you, uh, I'm not sure that that is uh, a response to contact with alternative counsel. The expression, sorry, the level of urgency, uh, was there any in this case? Well, if I could speak to that. The, the question of urgency has, 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 um, has, has come up, and I, my, um, the intervener, Ontario, uh, Ontario, uh, Ontario Attorney General, made some um, submissions that I adopt with respect to the, how you gauge a sense of urgency. As I've indicated, the, the, this was an ongoing investigation that had culminated at this stage in the arrest and the search warrant. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a sort of a cynicism expressed about these weekend arrests. That argument was made and rejected by the trial judge, and there was evidence as to why he was arrested on a Saturday. And the judge said, again, in those findings of fact that I said at the beginning, that there is no, there's no, um, I, I, that nothing was to be made of that. And, and the police, with respect to um, urgency, are, uh, and it's, it's, it's said in a number of cases, are certainly entitled to speak to the individual who knows most about the crime without putting the investigation, without, and without putting the investigation on hold for arguably speculation that on Monday, a lawyer who, in fact, Mr. McCrimmon says, I don't know if I'll hear back from him. Well, I mean, in this case, where we're speaking of the level of urgency, yes. uh, the suspect was in custody. Yes, but, but he has no, to be... No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. He has and, to be brought, though, before a Justice of the Peace within 24 hours, according to Section yes. 503 of the Code. And he he has... was to return on the Monday. Is that... Was, what did, is this the case, I forget now, between the three in one instance... Uh, the appellant, I think, was brought before a justice and remanded until Monday? He was remanded. Uh, he was not remanded at this stage. He was... Not this one. Yes, and... Right. Um, May I ask the question, and you have every opportunity to respond, is there anything in the evidence to suggest a particular urgency in the investigation in this case? Well, there's an urgency to assess, if nothing else, there may be... There may be an ex there may be information that this individual can provide about the offense itself. They believe they have the individual. They, they you know, he's a. You mean a, that, a, that the individual might not later provide, if given an opportunity to consult with counsel? Well, it's but but to delay. I mean, again, to delay an investigation that's ongoing and extant for. For, again, it's the reasonableness of the delay when it's a, a, a vital investigation, which it is at this stage, to hear back from a lawyer who might not, who might not be calling back, 
who might not even be available on Monday. We're well, certainly not going to call back if you make no effort to reach him. Yes, but, but, but with respect, my, um, my um, and I believe uh, the intervener made this point, it's, it's you know, the lawyer, the lawyers have to be accessible to some extent, too. And, and ultimately, though, this case is, is, is in the response submission about reasonable opportunity, but it's, it's more about choice, because ultimately, the, the, Mr. McCrimmon made a choice to be satisfied with the advice he had received to duty counsel. And if I could just go um, speak to my um, submissions on this point, we um, start the overview of, of the position is that um, the police um, did not have to hold off any further uh, speaking to Mr. McCrimmon because he had exercised his right to counsel. He had made a choice. He indicated that he was satisfied after contacting due to counsel. He said he was satisfied with that and satisfied with the advice he received. The trial judge's conclusions are um, set out. I've read some of the facts, but as well, in um, the trial judge was satisfied and set out that Mr. McCrimmon, the respondent, was arrest, he was, when he was arrested, he was informed he could call any lawyer he wanted to call. He ultimately indicated he didn't know whether he hear back from Mr. McCrimmon, from Mr. Cheevers, and then said that he had spoken to legal aid and that he was satisfied that, with that and he was satisfied with, uh, understood what he had been told. It is ultimately the respondent's submission that the trial judge's conclusion, which was available on the facts is that the appellant's charter rights under Section 10B were satisfied when he consulted with the lawyer from Legal Aid. He had all the information he needed when he spoke in to counsel in order to instruct the counsel, and he expressed satisfaction with having spoken to that counsel and with the advice he received. This conclusion is supported by the facts before the trial judge. He had the basis, in other words, factually, to conclude that the appellant had been properly informed and he had been given a reasonable opportunity to exercise his right, and he accepted duty counsel as the alternative. He accepted duty counsel as the alternative. The appellant recognized that Cheevers would not call him back. He expressed satisfaction with the advice he received. He was not, in other words, duly diligent in attempting to contact his own counsel. He chose to exercise his right through contact with duty counsel. And it was through duty counsel that he could get advice about contacting his right of counsel of choice. And this is the point in Regina and Willier, and I've included this in um, my fact and endorsed the uh, conclusion in Willier, because it's duty counsel who, who is there to provide advice to the individual, such as the Frankly, you're about telling us that, uh, that the constitutional right is the, cons is the right to access the duty counsel at legal aid. The, the constitutional right in the response submission is a right to choose between options. And, and uh, where's the right to, where's the right to, to choose when Ask, and I refer to the questions put to you by my colleague, Justice, Justice Fish. The police officers admits that he did essentially nothing to get in touch with the Council of Choice when he could have done more and otherwise. He, well, the officer did phone the law office and... and Listen, you, you have told that several times and you were put... Uh, we were, you were, uh, 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 my colleague put, put before you some excerpts 
from the uh, from the from the transcripts yes. of the examination of uh, the of the police officer, which say that they had, they had the phone number of achievers, uh, chose not to call him, not to tell not to tell uh, not to tell McRimond that they had that information and told him to call at the at the at the office at the phone at the phone number that would not be answered. The, the, um, yes, and uh, I, I, I've probably said all I can say then, uh, Justice. Uh, well, the, 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 having, the, having answered that question. Yes, the, the, um, but if I can point out, Cheever said his home number was in the phone book. The police didn't have that number. No, but they had a phone book. Yes, yes. And they alone had a phone book. That was the evidence. But, you know, you've said now several times yes. that the appellant um, accepted the, uh, his access to duty counsel. Yes. I, I'm not sure that you meant to say this, and I want to give you an opportunity to make clear that you don't mean this. That he was that satisfied. That the was satisfied with the advice. Uh, look at page 45, tab 7, and there are a dozen quotes that one can find in the record. The last question and I'm, I'm sorry, which, which, which? Sorry. Tab 5 Sorry. The appellant's condensed Yes, book. thank you. Please take your time. Yes. Tab 7, page 45. Yes. Um, I really want to speak to a lawyer, please, says the appellate. Well, you've done that, says the police officer. Yeah, you've done that. Well, duty counsel, I haven't spoken to my own lawyer. Is that evidence consistent with your submission that the appellant uh, was content to have spoken with duty counsel and uh, decided uh, that he no longer wished to speak with counsel of his choice. The, 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 the record, is, as I, um, I pointed earlier in the um, respondent's condensed uh, book, where um, he's asked if he's satisfied with the advice, and he indicates he is. Later, as he's being questioned, as he's being questioned, and, and I, I can take... It's uh, back, it's tab uh, seven of the respondent's condensed book at page um, 159. And he's asked, and uh, so you spoke to someone, I spoke to legal aid, yep. And then the officer says, okay, and that was good with you, you're satisfied with that answer, yeah, yeah. So having, in the page before, indicated a message has been left for Cheevers, hasn't been heard back, satisfied at that stage. Now, duty counsel could have said, Duty counsel could have been asked. I want to talk to Mr. Cheevers, and apparently he's not. Yes. I think you should go on to the next question Certainly. and answer. Yes. So it says you're satisfied with that. Yup, yup. Did you understand everything they told you? Apparently, if I'm under arrest, I have 24 hours before I can go in front of the judge. Yes. So you rely on that. Uh, oh. to uh, support for your submission uh, that the appellant was content with uh, having had access to duty counsel and did not wish to speak with counsel of his choice before making any statement to the police. I rely on his statement, are you satisfied answer, yes. With respect to what he reveals here, 
and what he reveals to Sergeant Prue about what that individual told him, it is this. Also later he says, I'm supposed to tell you that I own a home because that can be put up for bail. Later when he's talking to Sergeant Prue, he indicates that he understood he had a right uh, to silence. He, so again, we cannot get into the advice and for the reasons I endorse of what has been said in Willier and by um, my uh, colleague as intervener on Willier. We can't get into the advice that he was given. He expressed satisfaction. Now ultimately, um, and I've referred again to these, the other cases that are in the Willier factum, and if I could just very briefly uh, say that what we have is a situation where we have Prosper, Bridges and Bartle, which have created a holding off period for the implementational duties so that an individual can have a reasonable opportunity, depends on the surrounding circumstances, which includes the availability of duty council services. So the submission uh, for, the, for the police to be faulted by giving a Bartle uh, giving Bartle opportunity in the respondent's submission doesn't undermine the fact that this individual made a choice to speak to duty counsel. Duty counsel could advise him further if necessary. Now with respect to the, um, if I could just touch on the um, confessions rule, and I'm, I, 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 I'm running out of time. I, 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 it is the respondent's submission that the confessions rule captures many of the concerns uh, that, or all of the concerns that remain in light of the interpretation of the respondent's submission. And I've included at tab um, four of the um, respondent's condensed book the testimony of Sergeant Prue and about how he understood uh, the rights, whether Mr. McCrimmon understood and was voluntarily speaking, and that his obje object as an officer is to get voluntary confessions. The police want to get voluntary admissible confessions. To the extent that they ignore requests to access counsel, that's a factor that's been considered an oikol. And, and it's a respondent's submission that oikol, reading oikol and seeing and, and marrying those or putting those alongside the interpretation of 10b that my friends are urging for, for the um, appellants here and the interveners in support of them, it just it doesn't fit. It's just too, it's too broad. And it doesn't fit within what this court has already said. There is a mechanism that we deal with denial of access to counsel. It's in the confessions rule. It was recognized by Justice Yakabuchi in um, Oracle. And this, in the respondent's submission, McCrimmon is a case that the trial judge manifests the very approach that this court and appellate courts across the country have taken towards questions of voluntariness in the face of assertions of a right to silence and in the face of assertions of denial of access to counsel. It is a voluntariness issue and ultimately the judge captured the spirit of the interaction which happened here and ultimately concluded that the individual chose to speak. Chief Justice, Justices, I just have one uh, point I wish the court to take into consideration. That is, I urge the court not to subsume Section 10B under Section 7 and then ultimately under the Confessions Rule. My friends are taking the position, well, Section 10B can be, should be limited because of Singh in accordance with Section 7, and ultimately con the Confessions Rule provides the protection. The Confessions Rule yes, does look as to whether or not the statement is voluntary, but the significance of 10b is whether or not the decision to make the statement 
is in effect an informed one and has been informed by the advice of counsel. We on this side of the lectern don't have any objection to informed statements being taken by the police. We just ask that the individual be given the assistance that we say is under the charter to make that decision. Thank you. Thank you. I think that concludes the submissions in this case. I thank you all. The court will reserve its uh, decisions on these appeals, and the court stands adjourned. Thank you.